Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts for the privilege that we have to gather together in this place to worship you in truth and spirit. We pray, Father, that you would meet with us by your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own knowledge, but you have given us the very knowledge of God. We thank you for your word, which is inspired, inerrant, and truth. We pray, Father, that you would teach us this day that which we need to know so that we might grow in grace, so that we might become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray also, Father, for those that would be with us today that do not know Christ himself, that today would be a day of their salvation, that you would bring them to the knowledge of who Christ is and their need to repent and to trust in him and him alone. We pray, Father, that you would not only work in this place, but, Father, that you would work wherever the gospel is proclaimed this day to bring honor and glory to your name. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us this day. We know that there are those unable to join us because of the virus. We pray that you would bless them and watch over them and protect them, keep them safe. We pray especially for our senior adults and that you would continue to give them good health. And, Father, that you would give them the comfort that they need that only comes from your hand. We pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to have wisdom and to know what we should do as a church pertaining to our normal schedule and help us as we seek to make these decisions that need to be made. We pray, Father, for those that are not with us due to be, being away. We pray that you'd give them safety and bring them back to us quickly. And we pray also for those that would need your healing hand upon their body that you would restore their health and that they would give you praise and glory for your goodness and kindness in their life. We continue to pray, Father, for the church and that you would use your church to spread the gospel. We pray that you would raise up your church to be a mighty lighthouse in this world. How we pray that an awakening would take place in this nation to turn us back to the true and living God. Keep us from continuing to go down this path of destruction. And we pray that you would bring glory and honor to your name and turn us back to yourself. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me back to Mark chapter 15. I say back to it. No, we're just starting chapter 15. We finished chapter 14 last week. So Mark chapter 15 and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Mark 15, beginning with verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest had a consolation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and he said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Two weeks ago, we looked at how Pilate, not Pilate, I'm sorry, 
Annas and Capias railroaded Jesus in an illegal examination and trial that they had there at their home. And then he was presented to the Sanhedrin, and they had their illegal trial. This occurred somewhere between 1 and 3 a.m. in the morning. And there were three main points that I stressed to you. First of all, that it was illegal because it was at night. Also, they beat him there in the middle of the trial. We see that the Sanhedrin met even though not all were present. As I mentioned, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea evidently were not present because they said that it was a unanimous decision. Now, that is something interesting too. I read this week that there never could be a unanimous decision and sentence someone to death, that there had to be at least one individual to not vote unanimous, and that would be, of course, the lawyer that represented the victim. And of course, we see that Jesus had no one representing him, and we also saw that actually Caiaphas himself became like a lawyer accusing Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that they were false witnesses, and he was not allowed even to have witnesses. And then fourthly, the chief priest became, as I mentioned, the prosecuting attorney. One commentator gives ten different reasons why it was legal, but I did not write those down. You can search the internet and find those for yourself. Now, they ended up charging Jesus with blasphemy. But they did not mention this particular charge to Pilate, as we will see. Now, I discovered that when someone was found guilty by the Sanhedrin, that that person was not allowed to be put to death for at least 24 hours. Now, of course, you know that Jesus is going to be put on the cross at 9 o'clock. And it doesn't take a great mathematic Madden to figure out that from this time of 3 a.m. in the morning, of course, they're going to have another trial in just a moment at sunrise, which 5 o'clock, until 9 is not 24 hours. So that's something else that is illegal pertaining to how they treat Jesus. Now Mark tells us that this all occurred in the middle of the night. Matthew tells us the same thing. Now Luke tells us that they had a morning trial at sunrise, which was normally around 5 o'clock in the morning. That's in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. They knew that the law required that it must be a daylight trial. So they held a mock trial. Even though they had already held the trial in the middle of the night, they did this to make it look as though it was legal. So the Jews had done their part. And we see here in Mark chapter 15 that they bind Jesus and they take him to the Romans because they do not have the power to put anyone to death. So that is why we see them taking Jesus to Pilate, who was the governor over Jerusalem and this area. Now, I want us to go back and forth from Mark to John and also look at a passage in Luke, because as I told you before, 
to get the full story, you have to look at all four Gospels and see what is said. And Mark gives us a lot more information. I'm sorry, John gives us a lot more information than Mark. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 18. Mark chapter 18. And we see the story of what takes place in verses 28 and following. In verse 28 it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, when you look at this, I hope it jumps out to you like it jumped out to me. The hypocrisy. I mean, here we have these religious leaders unwilling to step onto Gentile land, into the Gentile space, but yet at the same time they have bound the Son of God and are seeking to put Him to death. They are more concerned about their outward ceremony of cleanness according to their man-made laws than they are about inward cleanness in their own life according to God's law. So they delivered Jesus to the porch of Pilate. They will not go on his property. And we see that Pilate is asked to come out. Now, I'm a little bit surprised that Pilate actually comes out this early in the morning. We're talking about 5 o'clock in the morning when they ask him to come out and to have this trial of judging Jesus. But evidently someone had gone in and they had talked to Pilate and they had brought to his attention who it was that was involved in this case. And of course, Pilate understood who Jesus was. I mean... They knew that it was going to be a difficult sell to Pilate because they didn't like Pilate and Pilate didn't like them. There was no love love loss between them. And Pilate was not given to letting them have their way. But yet at the same time, he also feared them. There had been much going on between the Jews and Pilate since he had taken office. He actually served for 10 years and he had served up to this time and done much harm to the Jews. So the Jews knew that he needed to be, or they needed to be politically careful in how they maneuvered to accomplish their wickedness that they were seeking to accomplish and have Pilate do the dirty deed of executing Jesus. So that's our introduction. And here we see man's wickedness. I mean, it is revealed to us in how they seek to destroy any person that stood in their way, these religious leaders. And they seek to restrain the power that Jesus had. And they continue to do it. History continues to repeat itself. But as Christians, we must understand that we must always stand against wickedness and for righteousness. First of all, I want you to see that Pilate sits as a human judge. So he begins to question Jesus, and we see that in John chapter 18 more clearly. 
when Pilate begins to speak to Jesus, and it says, Pilate then, in verse 29, went out to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered and they said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him, him to you, up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which was spoken, signified by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now the first question we see here, he's asked to the Jews, what accusations do you bring against this man? The religious leaders had brought Pilate, I mean, had brought Jesus to Pilate for one purpose, and that was for Pilate to pronounce a sentence of death and have him executed. They did not want Pilate asking any questions, they did not want Pilate to retrial Jesus. All they wanted Pilate to do was execute Jesus. And so therefore they respond there in verse 30, If he was not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. I mean, they're seeking to impugn Pilate here for asking any questions as if, Who are you to distrust our decision that we've already made? You just need to put your stamp of approval on what we've already said. Do you think that we would bring this man to you if he was not a criminal, if he was not an evildoer? We wouldn't do such a thing as that. How dare you question us? That's what they were more or less saying to Pilate. Now, of course, Pilate didn't trust them any more than he trust, they trusted him. There was no love lost between them. And Pilate was aware of who Jesus was, especially from what had happened that week. I mean, it seemed like it was a long time ago, but it was during that week at the beginning of the week when Jesus had come into Jerusalem and they had the big parade for him. Remember that? Here he is riding into the city on a donkey. All the people are saying, Hosanna. All the people are calling him king. All of them are recognizing him as the Messiah. And you think that Pilate didn't know that? Pilate knew that. I mean, they were coming and they were telling Pilate, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and they're giving a big parade for him and they're pronouncing him as king. He was well aware of it. He had his CIA guys out there watching every move that Jesus made and they were reporting back to him. So he was aware of all that was transpiring around him, that the people were calling him a king, Messiah, anointed one. Now let me add that Pilate was aware also of their obvious miscarriage of justice. So he responds by telling them, well take Jesus, you take him yourself. You judge him according to your law. And of course they respond there that they can't do that that he has to give them the permission to execute Jesus. And of course, we see quite clearly here 
that it is placed back on the Jews as far as the blood being on their hands, which is, of course, a fulfillment of the prophecies that were made. But as you look at this, you must think to yourself, well, how noble that they would never think of overstepping their parameters as far as putting Jesus to death. Well, we know that they weren't very noble because not only do we see later there's, and of course it wasn't official but from the Sanhedrin, but yet they were quick to put other people to death. We know that they put Stephen to death. We know that they put James to death. So it wasn't beyond them to put people to death. And of course the way they did it was by stoning and by cutting James in two. But yet they sought here to put him under Roman government. They knew the Roman law. And they knew that they were not allowed to commit capital punishment. But we also see that this is a fulfillment of Scripture because we know the way that a Roman would put a person to death for capital punishment would be by putting them on a cross. And the Scriptures taught us that if I be lifted up, So again, this is a fulfillment of God's original plan to save His people from their sin. Now notice their accusation against Jesus there in verse 30. They called Jesus an evildoer. They were saying that Jesus had committed such crimes, such evil deeds that He did not deserve to live, that He must be put to death. But remember, this was not the charge that they had made earlier there in the Sanhedrin. This charge was not even mentioned. What was the charge? What was the charge, children? Let's see if you remember. Pop test. It was what? Blasphemy. We see nowhere that they mentioned blasphemy to Pilate. Now why? Pilate could care less about blasphemy. I mean, people at that time, all of them were calling themselves gods. As long as they recognized Caesar as the ultimate god, it was fine for you to call yourself a little god. So that would not have bothered Pilate. So therefore, they have to come up with a new charge. Now, isn't this interesting? The Sanhedrin finds him guilty of one thing, and then they carry him to Pilate, and they say, well, he's guilty of this, which they didn't even discuss in their own trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, of course, they were not going to bring up deeds in their own trial before the Sanhedrin because there was many that could come and testify of Jesus' deeds and it would not have been that He committed evil deeds. It would have been that He committed good deeds. All the good things He had done for the people. So therefore, they could not afford to bring up deeds in that trial. Therefore, they bring these three false accusations. Look with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. It meant, I mean, chapter 23, verse 2. In Luke 23, verse 2, it says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation." forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Well, all three of these charges were false. 
I mean, if anything, it was just the opposite from what they're saying here. Remember, Jesus wouldn't even allow His disciples to take up the sword against the Romans. And He told them to pay their taxes to Caesar. We looked at that a number of months ago when we addressed that particular passage. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Give unto God what is His. I mean, He didn't tell them not to pay taxes. And He wouldn't even use the title king for himself. Now we see that the only thing that Pilate was interested in was Jesus' action. I mean, he doesn't even address the other charges that they bring to him. Now, this new charge of evildoer, they didn't even have a witness there to present before Pilate. They were saying, you simply must take us at our word that we're honorable men, and this is a dishonorable man. But again, according to the Jewish law, there had to be two witnesses that saw the evil done. And we see no witnesses here pertaining to what Jesus had done. And they could not have found any without them lying because Jesus never, ever did an evil deed. But we see that as Jesus stands there, he never denies any of these charges against him. He did not defend himself by telling all the good deeds that he had done. I mean, he could have told them a thousands of good things that he had done for people. But he simply did not respond. Why? Why didn't he say anything? Well, it's a fulfillment. A fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was our substitute. He willingly allowed himself to be numbered with evildoers. Now at this time, all of the guilt of the evil deeds that the redeemed have ever committed or ever will commit were being charged against Him as He stood as our substitute. He who knew no sin in experience, in practice, but was legally constituted sin so that He might save His people from their sin. Now Pilate saw through the deceit of the religious leaders. He understood the hatred that they had for Jesus. He understood the popularity of Jesus and how they envied and, and were jealous that the people were following Jesus and they were listening to Jesus and they were obeying Jesus. And His unwillingness to submit to their man-made laws... But yet Pilate was too weak to do anything about it. Today we would simply say he didn't have a backbone. He was too fearful of what the people might say or what the people might do. So therefore he simply followed his cowardness. It would not stand up against them at this particular time. 
Now, when Jesus was called an evil deer, doer, we see that he doesn't open his mouth. But he simply remains silent. He now bore all our sins upon himself to answer justice on our behalf. Christ had to die the death of an evil doer to save his people from their sin, to take our place. We exchanged places. He became the evil doer for us so that we might have eternal life, so that we might not suffer under the penalty of death. He suffers under the penalty of death. And it begins here in this particular trial. Now, second, Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the kings or the king of the Jews there in Mark chapter 15? And we see that Pilate completely ignores the other accusations against Jesus. And it appears that he's fascinated with this particular accusation, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. I mean, think of the scene. Here's Pilate out on the porch. Jesus stands before him, below him. He's been beaten. He's been spat upon. They've put a robe on him. He's sweaty, bloody. Does he look like a king? No. He doesn't look like a king. So it, it appears that Pilate is more or less asking this question with scorn. But the question is a legitimate question, so Jesus answers it. In your Bible, it may say, it is as you say. Notice that it is as is in italics. In other words, that's not in the original. In other words, the response is, you say. Now, John gives us a longer answer by what Jesus says there in John chapter 18. He says, are you speaking for yourself on this? Or did others tell you this about me? And then in verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So we see quite clearly that Jesus answers a legitimate question that is asked. But it's important to understand something about this charge. Jesus never set himself up as an earthly king here in, on this earth. Now we know that the multitude tried to make him king after he had fed the thousands, the multitude, there in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So, in other words, we see that he actually ran from being made king by the Jews. Now again, look at what Jesus says there in John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37. We read verse 36 just a moment ago. Then verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, 
that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? Well, he's pointing to the authority, the power, the right that he has as far as kingship is concerned. He has not been delegated this authority, power, and kingship by man. But he's been given this authority by his heavenly Father. And his rule comes as a result of the Father's authority. So therefore, he is king because his heavenly Father set him apart as king of kings. Now, of course, Pilate's not going to understand that. The religious leaders don't understand that. They were totally blind to these truths. Now in verse 37c, Jesus makes an interesting statement to Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now notice Pilate's response. What is truth? You might say, what an agnostic or skeptic. But there's more in this statement than meets the eye. I mean, one of the most prominent quotes of Jesus was what? I am the truth, the way, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So he clearly points out that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Truth stood before Pilate and he did not see it. He could not comprehend it. He never realized it because he's spiritually blind. Now we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But let's finish this passage. After Jesus answers Pilate, he went back out and Pilate says to the religious leaders, I find no fault at all. In other words, he was saying what? This man's innocent. Your charges are trumped up. He's not worthy of death. Again, go back to Mark's gospel. There in Mark chapter 15, we see that the chief priest replied to Pilate. The chief priest accused Jesus of many things, but he answered nothing. And then in Luke 23, 5, it says, but they were the more fierce saying. He stirred up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee to this place. And then we also learn in Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14, that while Jesus was being accused at this point, he never said a word to the Jews. He never said a word to Pilate in defense of himself. He answered Pilate's legitimate question, are you a king, and about his kingdom, but yet he never responds to the crowd as they are screaming and accusing him. He simply remains silent, again fulfilling Isaiah 53. Now this led Pilate to this question there in verse 4. 
Do you answer nothing? See how many things they're testifying against you? See, the Sanhedrin was bringing all of these ridiculous charges. They were more or less throwing what they could throw at him to see if anything would stick, if anything would get Pilate's attention to where Pilate would agree with them and confirm that he needed to be put to death. Now, it says that this caused Pilate to marvel there in verse 5. Pilate marveled. He had never seen anything like this before. He had never seen someone could, uh, who were charged with a particular crime to death and that person just stand there and say nothing. I mean, especially if you're innocent. You would be declaring your innocence. You would be saying, this is not true. You would be responding to all of the accusations that were being made. But he doesn't. And Pilate marveled at that. But yet at the same time, he realized he was caught between a rock and a hard place because of their request. Which brings me to my third point, and I want to go back and look at what Paul said, as I mentioned. I mean, not Paul, Pilate said. What is truth? Now, this is an age-old, vital question. Even in our day, or I could say especially in our day, because absolute truth is being rejected by most in our culture. Many say, I have my truth and you have your truth. Folks, that's ridiculous. If anybody ever says that to you, say, that is a ridiculous question. Don't say it's a stupid question because they don't want to carry on the conversation if you say it's a stupid. It is a stupid question, but don't say that. Just say, that's a ridiculous question. And show them how ridiculous it is. I mean, this generation likes to deny absolute truth, saying that something can be true for this person, and it might not be true for that person. And they began trying to make their argument. But we have to understand, that's totally absurd. If truth is truth, then truth is truth for everyone. Now, of course, this view is not new. And we see it here in what Pilate says. In reality, he is boldly rejecting the truth. Saying that something can be true for these Sanhedrins and something can be true for me and there may be something true for Jesus here. But he's totally rejecting truth. He's rejecting the truth that's standing before him. He speaks with contempt and, and dismisses Jesus. He, in reality, is thinking that Jesus is some kind of deranged lunatic. Seeking to belittle him in the way that he's treating Jesus. And there is anything such as real truth in, when Jesus responds in this way to him. Now we have to understand 
that in our day we are faced with this exact problem. In our government, in our legislative branches, even it reigns in the news media today. It even is taught in religious seminaries and even in many churches this mindset. We live in a day where the notion of truth is seen as ridiculous, as ludicrous. And if you think there is absolute truth, then you're looked upon as Jesus was looked upon as some deranged lunatic. Our age is tolerant of everything and anyone except for those who claim to know truth. They're intolerant if you professed absolute truth. Now this really boils down to is this. To reject truth is to reject God, who is the author of truth. So as Steve Lofton states, we are surrounded on every side in this culture by the question, what is truth? This is really the mother of all sins. It is a deliberate setting aside and an intentional rejection of the truth of God. This is the way it was in the beginning. In Genesis 3, Satan, the serpent, slithered onto the pages of human history and came to launch an attack on truth. That's exactly what he did. Remember? Did God really say? What is He doing? He's attacking truth. He's attacking the very words of God. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to deny truth. And sad to say, they do. And ever since the fall, man has gone his own way seeking to decide for himself what truth is. He doesn't seek to find out truth from God in His Word. He seeks to decide it by himself. And he ends up rejecting truth, rejecting God, because to reject truth is to reject God. And this is being played out right before our very eyes. More recently, we have seen that. That's what happens in these riots, folks. I mean, the protesters first began to write in protest, I should protest first, about the injustice, and rightly so. But the atheistic spoiled brats have taken over and they have begun to write, proclaiming that they know what is best for all people. And it's a sad demonstration. They believe it's okay for someone to destroy someone else's property, to steal, to loot, to even kill if someone gets in their way. We see chaos in our society today. But this chaos in reality is ungodliness and unrighteousness. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who what? Who what? You know the verse who suppress the truth in ungodliness. That's what we see happening right before ours, folks. In these rites, these spoiled brats, these atheistic brats, 
or suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, demanding that their truth, which is not truth, which is a lie, which is false, be held to. And of course, every generation, every person suppresses the truth in their lost state. They suppress the truth about God. They deny that there is a God. And unless a person is born again, he does not truly accept the truth. All men are born sinners, depraved. They all have a rebel heart. And we're seeing this radical corruption and total depravity in human nature today. People are in bondage and they don't even realize they're in bondage because Satan has deceived them. It reminds me of a quote. Some of you are old enough to remember the quote. Some of you maybe have watched the reruns of Dirty Harry in 1971. In the city of San Francisco, it was being terrorized by a rampant scorpion serial killer. And Clint Eastwood, who of course played Dirty Harry, has a dialogue with the big shots down there at City Hall who just don't understand who they are dealing with. And Harry says, you're crazy if you think you've heard the last of this guy. He's going to kill again. And the skeptical A.D. responds in his smart aleck tone, well, how do you know? And Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, in that guttural voice, you know he has, because he likes it. That's true. That's a lost person. That's these writers. Why are they doing this? You've probably asked that question, have you not? You watch it on TV and you scratch your head. Why in the world are they doing it? Because they like it. It lines up with their nature. They're sinners because sinners are going to do what? Sin. You know, sometimes we don't think. We scratch our head and say, well, why did that person do that? They did it because they're a sinner. And they like it. You see it in your children. Why do your children behave they, like they behave? Because they're sinners. That's why we pray for their salvation until they are set free from the bondage of sin. They will continue to love their sin. Now you might can act, make them act right, but it's like the story I've shared many times, a little boy you know, that was told to sit down, and he wouldn't sit down, and his mom finally said, if you don't sit down, you're not going to be able to sit down. He got the point, and he sat down. But he mumbled, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. That's children. And sometimes that's you and me. That was us in our lost state too. Shouldn't be like that in our Christian state. And we need to pray that God would change our children so that they would have a new heart. But sinners do it because they like it, as Clint Eastwood said. And Paul tells us the same thing in Romans 1.25 when he says, Who exchanged the truth of God, there it is again, truth, for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, that's what people are doing today. We see it all around us. People serve the creature rather than the Creator. 
We live in a culture that has exchanged truth, the truth of God, for what? For lie. The same lie at the very beginning when Satan came to Adam and Eve. He tells them a lie. And therefore they suppress the truth and they believe a lie. And this is destroying this nation and disintegrating our society. It all begins with what? Rejection of the truth of God. As I stated earlier, nowhere is it more clearly seen than with students. At many of the universities, in many cases, they are being taught to undermine truth and authority. Some of you may have seen just recently a private university in Virginia offers a freshman writing seminar entitled How to Overthrow the State. And then there's a course at Washington and Lee University. Listen to what it says about this course. It places each student at the head of a popular revolutionary movement aiming to overthrow a sitting government and forge a better society. Students will ponder questions such as how will they attain power, communicate with masses, and improve people's lives. That's what they're being taught that take this class. And they think this is going to improve communication and this is going to improve people's lives. Again, a lie, deceitfulness. One survey revealed that 64% of adults, 36 and up, say that there's no moral absolutes. 64%. Only 22% say that there are moral absolutes. That's unreal. But I believe it. When you look at our nation and you see what's happening, only 20%, 22% believe that there are moral absolutes. And 75% of those 18 through 28, let me add to that, that's, that's the age group of those who are riding so today, say there's no absolute. 75%. Let me say, parents, if you don't teach your children that there are absolutes, society and school will definitely teach them that there's no absolutes. We need to realize, folks, we are in a war. A war for the souls of our children and our grandchildren. I remember in 1990 when I went to the Southern Baptist Pastors Conference Uh, John MacArthur spoke and Josh McDowell got up and spoke. And I remember Josh McDowell. Now this was 30 years ago and he was telling us of these very things that I'm talking about now. He said, this is on the horizon. We are about to be bombarded that we Christians will be looked upon as intolerant and everything will be accepted except for us and truth. He said the only absolute for them is that there is no absolute truth. The only truth is that there is no truth. And the only intolerance is the intolerance of intolerance. That's come true. 
No truth gives way to things such as abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, pornography, and all kinds of lewd behavior. It all is traced back to the point of departure and rejecting the truth. So when you begin to scratch your head and wonder why all of these sins are so prevalent in our society, all you have to do is realize that it's due to rejection of truth, rejection of God. Steve Lawson adds, and and let me say that in their bulletin that was sent to you by uh, text this morning, he has some more information about truth that is very good to read. Read it this afternoon. But he says, humanism says man is truth. Pragmatism says whatever works is true. Pluralism says everyone has a piece of truth. Relativism says each situation determines the truth. Mysticism says intuition is true. Skepticism says one can know the truth. Hedonism says whatever feels good is true. Existentialism says self-determination is true. Secularism says this present world is truth. Positivism says whatever man confesses is true. This is the world in which we live in. The rejection of truth, the new post of series, we will look to reality of truth. And that's what's in your order of worship, the reality of truth. We must follow in the steps of our Lord Jesus Christ and stand for truth. Speak the truth in love. But this is not easy, folks. This is difficult. You may even be threatened with the loss of your job, with loss of friends, and even loss of family when you stand upon the truth. You will be looked at as a weirdo. You will be accused of being some cult leader when you stand on truth in our day today. But as Spurgeon says... We must expect to be misrepresented. We may reckon that our words will have no meaning to ungracious ears, and that's true, than those which we intend. We may expect that when we teach one thing which is true, they will make us out to have said something clearly different, which is false. But let us not be overwhelmed by the fierce trials as though it were some strange thing. Our Lord and Master has endured it. The servant must not escape. Wherefore, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ and be not afraid. That's my challenge for you this morning. Be not afraid. Stand firm. Speak out. It's not easy to speak out. Because you know when you speak out, you're going to be attacked. And you're going to be called all kinds of names, just as Spurgeon says there. And even what you say will be twisted to make it sound like it's false in what you say. But yet we must. Because if we as Christians do not stand up and speak out, who will? Who will? No one else will stand up and speak the truth. I close by asking you, is Jesus Christ your Lord? Is He your King? 
The one who was willing to come and die for sinners, whom he loved so much that he willingly took their place, became their substitute, died in their stead, did all that we looked at today for them. For the king to be victorious, the king must die his great royal death. How pleased was God with his beloved son, Silent. He was very pleased because he fulfilled prophecy. And God states that he would grant to his son to have a name that is above every name and set him at the right hand and give him all authority in heaven and on earth and highly exalt that name because he humbled himself. He lowered himself and became a man and God therefore has exalted him so very high. And my question is, have you bowed? Have you bowed before him? Only through Jesus Christ can salvation come. Look to Him. Set all your hope on Him. Repent of your sins and trust in Him and in Him alone so that He will be Lord of your life so that you might worship Him and serve Him all the days of your life. Why would you continue to reject such a loving Savior as Christ. Run to Him today and be saved. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for such a great Savior. A Savior that has loved us with an everlasting love. A Savior who willingly took our place took our sins upon Himself, was numbered with transgressors, was numbered with the evildoers, even though He was innocent, had never sinned, but yet He was willing to become sin so that we might have eternal life. What a Savior. May we worship Him. May we bow before Him. May we live for Him. Cause us, Father, to be faithful to preach the truth and stand firm on the truth and teach others the truth so that you may receive glory and honor in your name. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake. Amen.